Hi, everyone, and welcome to the DCRO Risk Governance Podcast, where we're focusing on risk governance issues, learning about the work of and receiving guidance from experienced board directors, senior executives, and thought leaders on issues that are important for those governing organizations. My guest today is Tom Brandt. Tom is the Chief Risk Officer for the Internal Revenue Service in the United States, where he leads the agency's enterprise risk and audit management programs. Prior to that, he was the Director of Planning and Research in the IRS Large Business and International Division, with responsibility for the division's workload selection and risk identification processes. In 2016, Tom served as the head of the Tax Administration Unit at the OECD in Paris, where he led the work of the Forum on Tax Administration, a body that brings together the leaders of tax administrations from more than 50 countries. After returning to the IRS in 2017, he founded and continues to serve as chair of the OECD's Enterprise Risk Management Community of Interest. He's been a member of the Board of Directors for the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management and served as its president in 2019. Welcome, Tom. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here, David. And, and I'm happy to have you with us. I'm going to start with the surprising thing that I learned, which is that the IRS has a chief risk officer. I think others are going to be surprised to learn that the IRS has someone in this role. And I wondered if you could give us a little bit of the history behind its creation and then your decision ultimately to become that chief risk officer, because I think there's a little bit of a story behind that. Yeah, well, it's interesting, David, and I think a good question for us to start with. The IRS, probably back in the 2010 to 2013 timeframe, had been experiencing kind of a number of what I'll call risk events. And, you know, in a review kind of of what was going on, I think there was an, an assessment that there were missed opportunities where had leadership or management been made aware of, you know, percolating issues sooner, or perhaps had taken a broader view of the risks associated with some of these issues that something could have been done before these events turned into kind of crises. So after kind of one of the more significant events that affected the agency, there was an after event review that was done. And kind of one of the key recommendations coming out of that was that IRS needed to have a capability to identify and escalate risks more quickly and to be able to look across the entire organization, you know, at a full range of risk and certainly make sure that leadership was aware much sooner of, you know, issues as they were percolating. And so that recommendation included the tie-in to enterprise risk management and also the establishment of a chief risk officer position. And so that was probably late 2013 that the first chief risk officer was appointed at the IRS and he joined, actually, the first risk officer came to us from the Government Accountability Office, or GAO, and I was asked to work with him early on as the program was first uh, being set up. And then in 2014, uh, he decided to, to uh, take an opportunity to the private sector, and our commissioner at the time asked if I would be interested in stepping into that role. I was really quite content at the time with the position I had, and I was not living in the D.C. area at the time. But it was painful to see kind of what the IRS was going through and, and all the kind of consequences we were feeling because of some of those risk events. So I saw this as an opportunity for, for me to perhaps help the agency get through that and maybe position it better so that, you know, going into the future, we would avoid, you know, those types of situations. So I did agree to take on that role and I moved back to Washington and, you know, again, I've pretty much been serving in that capacity since. And hopefully, you know, have been able to make a difference for the agency and, you know, in its overall stance and, and capabilities in addressing and managing risk. 
So it sounds in a way like there were headline events. And I talked to people about where risk departments come from. Sometimes they come through regulatory fiat. Sometimes they come because people understand that there's value that can be added from it. And other times they come from experiences. And it sounds to me like what you had described was bad experiences and that somebody wanted to try and make sure those things didn't happen again. Was the GAO the source of that? And is, is that why the first chief risk officer came from there? No, but there were some um, risk events that were tied in with some oversight that both our inspector general and GAO, I think, were asked to look into you know, after some of those events occurred. But I believe just because GAO has had a broader experience in managing and addressing risk government-wide, and of course, they've had the high risk list in place for almost two decades, I think there was an a recognition that GAO would have some expertise and experience that could help us. But you're certainly right around headline events being kind of a reason why, you know, IRS, you know, added or introduced the ERM program in a CRO position. And I oftentimes tell folks, you know, don't don't wait for the headline event to be the reason why you establish an ERM program or designate a CRO. You're better off getting ahead of that and avoiding it by making the investment and you know using that to your advantage for sure. Well, and I think that ties into this, this idea, you know, and we'll in a second talk about a couple of articles that you've written that I really enjoyed, by the way. One of the places that I was reading your writing, I saw you describe your work as enabling the identification, prioritization, evaluation, and treatment of key risks to achieving the IRS mission. Now, a lot of people might just think of the IRS mission is to get our money. And it's an interesting idea because I think there probably are some, some subtleties to this that most people don't understand. But we had uh, Bart Madden, uh, and I reference his podcast with us in his book quite often because I, I, I think they're so good and I would encourage anyone to, uh, who's listening to, to read that. But he describes firm risk, anything that stands in the way of an organization realizing its purpose. So it's a lot like what you just described in terms of the work that you're doing, but again, there have to be some subtleties to that that are different uh, within a government agency like the IRS as opposed to a, a private entity. Would you be talking about that a little bit? Sure. And I, you know, and I do think that, that you know, Bart is right on point, certainly his book as well, around kind of firm risk. And I think the way we look at that is trying to identify what are those things, those risk events that if they were to occur, they would really kind of impede or hinder the ability of our organization to deliver on its goals and its objectives. And looking at our mission, for example, which you know certainly our primary responsibility is to collect tax that funds the operations of the country. But part of that is you know, helping taxpayers fulfill and meet those responsibilities and you know, providing service to help taxpayers comply. So we look at sort of any of those types of risk events that could get in the way of our ability to accomplish those things as you know, significant risk. And clearly operating in government and operating in government today, it is an environment that in and of itself is creating and, and presenting risk. And, and I think one of the, you know, maybe more recent challenges we've had in that environment is that there's not always agreement about the policies that agencies are tasked with implementing. And certainly for IRS, We've been tasked with implementing a number of significant you know, legislation and initiatives over the last several years, and some of those passed with very thin margins or really passed through one party. And what that means, though, is that when we're then tasked with implementing you know, that legislation or those acts, the political disagreement 
you know, doesn't end at the time the act is passed, that then carries over or spills over into, you know, when the agency is trying to implement that. So it adds a whole nother layer of risk around our ability to operate and what we've been challenged and tasked with accomplishing, because we're at that point then tasked with implementing something where there still isn't broad consensus. And I think that has created some specific challenges from a reputational standpoint, a trust standpoint, that we've had to factor in and probably take extra steps, particularly around communication, to make, I think, all stakeholders and interested parties more fully aware and understanding of what we've been tasked with implementing and how we're going about doing that. Well, and you use the word stakeholders, which you know is something that's important to me because you've seen some of the stuff that, that, that I've lectured on in that. But yes. it's important to everybody, I think, that, that are looking at how corporations perform, or in this case, a, a government enterprise, your stakeholder base then changes. The challenge, it sounds like, for, for at least your agency and maybe all the other agencies, is that if you're going to try to put a three to five year horizon on planning, there are at least one, if not two, election cycles in that horizon. So that stakeholder group can change dramatically. Is that, is that sort of what you're saying in terms of when policy isn't fully settled, but you still have to implement it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair, David, is that we can be tasked with implementing something that one administration or Congress puts in place. And then if there's a change in leadership or parties in the next election, then, you know, the course can can change. Um, and then that can, you know, cause us to have to redo or pull things back or implement something, you know, in a, in a completely different manner. But even during the course of a single administration or a single Congress, because there's not the level of consensus that there used to be, I think, on more on more of these, you know, larger policy issues, that disagreement probably still continues and rolls over even to into the time when we're you know trying to implement programs and i think you know that just creates again that level of risk because we're operating in an environment where there isn't full support behind what it is we've been charged with doing and and i think too of of long term versus short term planning and those kinds of horizons and you know when we talk about value creation typically when we think about that in, in the private sector it has more of a long-term focus to it so if i start to think that my board of directors for example might change every two years and might change radically what it's what it's wanting um, that makes it much harder for me as somebody trying to implement the board's directives uh, i think to do that well but can we talk about value creation in the public sector, or is that just something that, that is only in the private sector? Well, I mean, we aren't, of course, building necessarily market value in a government agency. But for us, I think what we what we try to look at as the as the item or the issue that we're trying to protect and promote is our mission. And so that's really what the value is that we're trying to enable or advance or build on is our ability to deliver on the mission of our organization. And, and we're using our risk management program as a way to, again, identify what are those things that could impede or get in the way of our ability to effectively deliver on our mission and hopefully build and strengthen that capability over time. So again, while we're not creating necessarily market value, you know, as a, as a private sector company might do, we are promoting value more broadly for the government and for the country and trying to do that through the achievement and delivery of our mission. Yeah, and, and you're getting, you know, again, something near and dear to my heart, which is value that's created that's really difficult to measure. I mean, I suppose you could you could measure it in terms of tax revenues collected or, or, or some other metric. But when we get to things, and we'll talk a little bit, I think, more about trust 
or people's favorable view of an enterprise and that enterprise can be a government uh, agency. I think there is value that's created that is really difficult to measure, but nevertheless, something that's, that's important. So I wanna talk a little bit about an accomplishment of yours. You recently completed our program or the BCRO Institute's program in certificate in risk governance. And first off, congratulations on that because um, that's how you and I got connected here. It's how I learned that the IRS has a chief risk officer. Uh, and it's also, you know, it's a, there's a lot of work in that program. So uh, congratulations for getting through that. But I also, you. Ask, yeah, well, no, it's, it, it's, it's well-earned. Um, I want to ask you though, because one of the things we try to do in that program is to give board members a perspective on how a risk infrastructure works from a governance standpoint, but also to give people who are in roles like yours as a chief risk officer, some perspective on what a board needs. Now, I'm not sure at the IRS who you consider to be your board or, or what would be the equivalent of that. But after going through that program, how does your perspective on the governance of risk at whatever the board of the IRS is change you know, relative to the way in which you're managing risk in the office at the executive level? Is there, is there a board or board equivalent? And, and what does it do for you in terms of thinking about their perspective as you do your work? Well, I do think there's a board and that probably that board is Congress, which means for us 535 members of the House and Senate and at least 435 of those up for election every two years. And a lot of you know challenges in trying to, I think, respond to, understand and anticipate kind of the direction and views of that board. And certainly when administrations change or the leadership of Congress changes, that can mark a pretty significant shift in, you know, the oversight board or the board's um, views of, you know, what our agency should be focusing on and, you know, its overall role in government. So, you know, I think they kind of do operate as our board, although it certainly is a, a very unique board. I do think where there's some commonality is that you know, I think generally speaking, boards and executive teams share some of the same intended outcomes of a good risk management program, but certainly their responsibilities and roles, you know, vis-a-vis -vis that are certainly distinct. Now, an area where the board and I think, you know, the certificate program really helped in this too, in looking at kind of the roles of the board. And when you're looking, for example, at setting risk appetite, you know, I think that's where a board can have an important role is working with the leadership team and the executive team on helping to set acceptable levels of risk tolerance and risk appetite. And for us, I think the challenge maybe in government is that, and particularly for IRS, but for all agencies, I think we need to do a better job of working with our board, which is Congress, so that they understand the level of risks that we are taking on or accepting in the delivery of the programs and the services that they've charged us with. You know, many times, oftentimes, our ability to deliver those programs is clearly tied to the level of funding and staffing uh, levels that we've been authorized or the manner in which laws are written. And so as an example, when we think back over the last year and a half and all of the pandemic relief legislation that was passed, you know, there was a strong desire by Congress and the administration to get that relief out as quickly as possible and in the least burdensome way. And of course, you know, it was urgent that we all attend to those uh, requests as quickly as possible. But at the same time, then that means there might be some trade-offs. If we're gonna do something quickly, then that might mean that we're going to have to accept a higher level of errors or perhaps that our ability to minimize as much fraud as possible might be challenged. And so there are gonna be trade-offs, but I do think that's an area where perhaps we could have done more to increase the level of awareness of our board um, e.g. Congress, around kind of the risks that we're 
we were having to accept or that were being accepted in order to meet their expectations and under the timeframes in which they expected. But I think that's maybe a bit of an example of how discussions between, you know, agency or executive team and their board are, are so important and so critical. You hit on something that will sound familiar to a lot of people, particularly outside of financial services, although there's some element to this there. But that's the notion of quality control and an accepted error rate. And, and you talked about getting something done quickly, but then accepting more errors in a way that's getting to this idea of, of risk appetite. And I'm going to ask you about that in just a second. But this notion of how you do that work, and I think probably the ACA was something that you guys had to implement fairly quickly as well. Do you have a conversation internally then about this, this notion of, of higher error rates and, and who has to sign off on that? Or is there really no choice because Congress, your board, told you to do it? Um, no, we will have discussions. And certainly we operate in an environment where we, we report to the Treasury Department. And then we've got the Office of Management and Budget that's involved. You've got the administration. You've got our oversight committees in Congress. And then we also have our oversight bodies, the Government Accountability Office, our Inspector General. So you know, there oftentimes are discussions around kind of the trade-offs that, you know, it might it might take us this much more time in order to develop this program in a way that's going to reduce uh, errors or reduce opportunities for fraud by X percent. But, you know, doing that means we're going to delay the implementation or payments by a certain amount of time. And is that something that's acceptable? And I think those, you know, again, can be challenging and difficult discussions to try to balance, I think, the broader interest of, you know, why those programs were implemented with kind of some of the impacts or effects, you know, if things are delayed or not rolled out as intended. But I think why that's so critical is because, you know, after the program's implemented, the payments are made, and then the audits and the oversight are conducted to show, well, you know, IRS issued these payments and had this many errors, or they allowed this much fraud that we're the ones sort of having to answer for those questions. And that's why I think it's critical for us to try to have those discussions up front so that we know going in, kind of in our broad set of stakeholders, kind of what to expect. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You bring back some memories um, in the financial services side of, of early in the days of risk management or modern risk management, where risk was the department you blamed if things went wrong, uh, as opposed to, <laughs> to integrating into the things up front, like you'd said. So You've, you hinted at the beginning, I mean, we talked about the origin of your role and origin of, of a risk function at the IRS coming from some headline events. And then there's an article that you wrote describing some of that. I think it's probably about 2018 called Lessons Learned the Hard Way. You talk in there too about a word that you mentioned earlier, which is trust. And then this other notion that we were just talking about, which is a risk appetite at the, at the agency. And people probably, again, who are surprised that there's a chief risk officer there, maybe even more surprised to find that you can go to the IRS website and find a risk appetite statement. And that's not something I think, again, people are, are understanding that, that government agencies are doing this kind of work. But let's talk about the IRS's risk appetite statement in relation to trust building. And as you craft this, you know, again, going back to some of the history of, of, of risk management and, and building new programs like this, what kind of pushback, if any, did you get in crafting that? You know, it's a good question. And for me, this was a really eye-opening and I think insightful exercise that I helped facilitate with the leadership team at the IRS. And, you know, I think notionally we all accept or assume that we know what our risk appetite is or we have a general sense of an organization's risk appetite. But when you when you ask people to write it down and to put in writing 
uh, what the level of risk is that you're willing to accept and what are those areas where you're willing to take more risk and areas where perhaps you're, you know, you're, you want to take less risk. That is a really, I think, interesting exercise because it does then highlight for you where there can be some disconnects. And I think, you know, when you talk about the trust aspect, for us to be able to be very transparent throughout the organization and all areas and putting out there kind of our view of where we're accepting more risk and where we're less risk tolerant, there's variability in an organization as large as the IRS. And I think the exercise wasn't around well, how could you accept risk in those areas, you know, and how could you have accept that much risk or, or not accept, take on more risk, but to have those discussions to understand, well, what was behind that, what was informing it, but then more importantly, to come together as a leadership team and have a discussion and make decisions around, well, what really is the level of risk appetite that we want to communicate for the agency overall? And what are those areas that we want to make sure that everyone in our organization is you know, more attuned to the need to be cautious when we're engaging in an activity or taking on a program that might introduce more risk? And what are those areas where we recognize that in order to innovate or change or grow, we may, we may need to be willing to adopt and take on more risk. So the exercise itself, having those discussions, putting it in writing, and I think being, again, much more clear on kind of where parts of the organization were and where then we ended up as a leadership team, that was a really important, I think, component of our ERM program at the IRS. And we went back and forth on a few different iterations of that uh, risk appetite statement before it was finalized. And I think at the end of that whole process, it was, you know, seen as a really valuable use of time and a valuable engagement with, with our leadership team. And we've actually just updated our risk appetite statement, reflecting on kind of what's transpired during the pandemic and, and a review of areas where IRS has had to shift its risk appetite statement a bit in response to kind of some of the new challenges that the pandemic has uh, presented and created for, for us. And I think in, it's either in that article or, or another one, you had talked about how within the IRS, almost every group has a risk register or has some log of the things that they're facing. When you go through this exercise, whether it's the risk appetite creation or, or having people creating a risk register of, of things that you know, they need to be paying attention to or that are important for the mission of the organization, have you had a lot of people tell you things like, you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way, or that's really helpful to put it in that framework? And then if so, how has that impacted, say, the, the development of uh, the IRS strategic plan? Yeah, that's a good question too, David. And I think that's one of the other kind of lessons learned that came out of some of those assessments that you know were done back in the early 2010s, evaluating kind of what happened with some of those events. Or IRS and organizations you know, always are paying attention to risk and managing risk and addressing risk. But I think what we found is we were very focused on certain types of risk, on operational risk or program risk, compliance risk, but maybe less attuned to, you know, more maybe strategic level risks or reputational risks or, you know, understanding other impacted stakeholders on, you know, certain decisions that involve some level of risk. And so I think the added benefit that ERM has provided and this broader view of a of a wider set of risks is it has opened up the eyes of our, our organization and management and leadership to a more complete set of risks and a better knowledge and awareness of how you know potential events could impact the agency and the organization overall. And so that certainly does play into setting you know our strategies and certainly in you know in how those are executed and I think implemented. And so I do think that that's been a benefit of 
of ERM for, for the IRS. Well, in the, in the article, the more recent article, I, think, I still think it was a couple of years ago that I'd mentioned before, I think it was called getting ahead of risks before they become government failures. And, and that to me seemed like, uh, at least where it was published, that that was intended for other agencies, you know, in, in terms of the message uh, about implementing ERM. And I wondered, you know, have you seen more uptake of this in other agencies? Well, you know, interestingly, I uh, wrote that article um, as a result of my involvement in the Association for Federal Enterprise Risk Management, and through that organization, having a broader exposure to what's happening, you know, across government. And I think we were seeing that there were still a number of agencies where they were having challenges and getting executive and leadership buy-in and support for for ERM, and in particular, moving beyond just kind of the minimum requirements that were set out for the federal government, because the Office of Management in budget in 2016 did set out some expectations for agencies to adopt and implement ERM, which was good, but you know, that set kind of some minimum requirements. And I think what we were seeing is a number of organizations were, you know, doing that, just the minimum requirements and not not really implementing and embracing ERM for what it was intended, which was to improve decision making and to enhance the ability of those organizations to identify and get ahead of risk before they impacted mission. And so what I was trying to articulate in that article was, again, the, the opportunity that ERM could present for, for agency leaders, both career and political leaders, as they they're stepping into new roles to use ERM as a way to avoid surprises and to actually increase the likelihood not only of agency success but also of personal success for these leaders and in cases for for political appointees that if they have a better sense of kind of what could go wrong in the agency then it gives them an opportunity to do something about it before it manifests and turns into a crisis and I think one of the points I made in that article is all too often in government when something goes wrong there's a rush to find somebody accountable to point fingers and oftentimes what happens is leaders of agencies and and organizations that have a risk event before there's even a, a review of the facts, those folks are asked to resign or step down or leave their positions. And so the point I was making was the time to implement ERM is before those risk events occur, because if you wait until something happens, you're not going to be the one that's then asked to implement ERM. You're going to be asked to step aside and it'll be left up to whoever comes in behind you to hopefully by then see the wisdom of having an effective risk management program in place within the organization. Yeah, and John, John Howard's lecture in the certificate program um, on environmental risk makes exactly that, that case. You know, map it out before. You know something's gonna happen someday, map it yep. out before, so you have, a, you have a sense of what you're supposed to do. We've got about a minute left. And so I wanna give you a chance because some of our listeners are gonna be early in the stage of implementing either risk governance at the board level through a risk committee or a risk department. What are some of the lessons learned or what, what quick advice, practical advice would you give them in terms of expectations or best steps to take at the early stages of, of developing a program like you did? Yeah, I think that you know, maybe the best piece of advice that I could offer is that it really is important when you're setting up an ERM program or a risk program is to be flexible. And, and I would highly recommend and encourage the use of a maturity model or a capability model approach that you're setting out kind of what you're hoping to accomplish and what you're hoping to set up and put in place over a defined period of time, recognizing that 
you can't do it all at once. And and if you try to kind of come in and get everything done at once, you're you're going to have a hard time doing that. You've got to be willing to you know take the time to put the components in place, to have means for gauging and collecting feedback, to have a willingness to pull something back if it's not working in, as intended, and to regroup and figure out a way to redeploy that in a manner that is more likely to be successful. So I think it really helps if you view this as a journey uh, and as a practice that you're seeking to to more broadly integrate into the way the organization operates so that it's not in the long term viewed as just something that we do in addition to everything else, but it's actually an integral part of strategic planning, performance management, decision making of the organization. And over time, that it perhaps is then you know, viewed as something that we just naturally do as part of those activities in our respective organizations. No one who knows me will be surprised by the fact that I love the positive aspect that you're putting into this. It's really essential for us in in risk. When we get something implemented upon us, we don't like to engage it as well. But when we see the benefit to it and and the positive side, which you've just described over the last few minutes, I think it becomes much more ingrained in what we're doing. Thank you, Tom. This is great. I am really encouraged to hear that this is happening in your agency and other agencies. I'm also very encouraged by the international aspect of your work. We can only get things better. Government is our representative and and it's us. It's one of these things that doesn't exist outside of us. It is us. And and so the better it runs, uh, the better it is for all of us. So thank you for the work that you're doing there. But thanks also for sharing this with everybody. It's it's really nice, again, to, to learn about this. And I appreciate all your time today. Well, thank you. And I again, appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, David. It's been, I think, really insightful for me too. And I appreciate the chance to just kind of share a little bit about you know, what we're trying to accomplish as well at the IRS, really on behalf of the American people. So thanks for the opportunity to chat today. 